Welcome to the Anxiety at Work podcast. I'm Chester Elton, and this is my co-author and dear friend, Adrian Gosling. Well, welcome, everyone. We hope that the time you're going to spend with us will help remove the stigma of anxiety and mental health in the workplace and your personal life. We invite experts from the world of work and life to give us ideas and, most importantly, tools to deal with anxiety in our world. And our guest today is our new friend, Natalie Kogan. Natalie is an expert and best-selling author on the subject of emotional fitness. She has worked as, a, as an executive with McKinsey and Microsoft and founded several startups and tech companies. She is the founder of Happier Inc., great name, <laughs> and creator of the awesome Human Project, another great name, and author of several books, including Happier Now and the Awesome Human Sorry, you, you want to do project. that again? It was It's the happy, Awesome Human Podcast, podcast yeah, no. not Project. I'll, no, if you I'll let do it again. Brent edit that out. Okay. Yeah, here we right. go. Deep breath. Our guest today is our new friend, Natalie Kogan. Natalie is an expert and best-selling author on the subject of emotional fitness. She has worked as an executive with McKinsey and Microsoft and founded several startups and tech companies. She's the founder of Happier Inc., one of the great names of a company out there, and the creator of the Awesome Human Podcast, and author of several books, including Happier Now and The Awesome Human Project. Welcome to the show, Natalie. We're delighted to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, this is great. You know, you talk very vulnerably, I think, about your own burnout as an executive. So we wanted to start there. Uh, walk us through your story and more importantly, what you learned and, and how it led to the work you're doing right now, Natalie. Yeah, I think if you told me 10 years ago that I'd be, you know, writing a book about or speaking on stage about or talking to you all about a burnout, I would, you know, I would shoosh you out of the room because... I spent my, you know, I spent, I came to the U.S. as a refugee uh, when I was a teenager, and that kind of instilled in me this idea that, you know, it doesn't matter what happens in life, you just grit, you know, there's this word grit that's very popular now, um, I didn't know it at the time, but it was like grit and bear it, so not grin and bear it, but grit and bear it, and so I subscribed to this idea both as early in my career and then as a leader, you know, of being a martyr, right, so work really, really hard, care about my team, care about our performance, care about our, our mission, and just completely ignore my own emotional health or mental health. I, to be honest with you, actually, I didn't even have any awareness of these things, so it was easy to ignore. Uh, and so uh, I know what I'm saying is probably a lot of people listening, well, you guys are nodding, I think people are listening, because we have this idea of servant leadership that I think most of us misinterpret. I did, and I work with a lot of leaders who do, as martyr leadership, as ignore your own needs, focus on others. So that's what I did for 20 years as a leader until one day I, I that's it, I couldn't function anymore. And uh, you know, burnout is a complicated issue. We all experience it differently. I do wanna say that, but in retrospect, I was burning out daily for years, maybe decades. And some symptoms of that for me and you know, for others include things like just feeling at the end of the day that you're just on empty, like you have nothing else to give. Starting to resent work that I actually love doing, uh, which is also a very common sign of burnout, is resenting something that you otherwise love. Um, I started to withdraw from any social interactions, like including with people on my team who were friends. Um, and just this general feeling of dread, just every day was dread. So I, you know, I had been experiencing this for decades, but I, did, as I didn't have any awareness of, you know, I live from my neck up, 
always grew up in a very kind of intellectual cerebral way. And so it took burning out this overwhelming experience that I went through where I just stopped being able to function, which is really painful to say. I stopped being able to function as a leader, as a mom, as a human being. And, you know, the painful irony was here I was running a company called Happier, which I had founded with the mission to help millions of people realize their full potential, right, through these science-backed methods, and I couldn't function. And so it was an incredibly painful experience, but as often, um, there was a blessing in it because for the first time in my life, I had to stop and actually think about how do I do this work that I love, but how do I do it in a sustainable way that also honors me as a person? And I didn't know what to do. I just want to be really open about that. I had no plan. I didn't know what to do. This was all new to me. So I dove into something I always respected, a lot of research. My father is a scientist. I grew up with a great respect for science. So I read every research study and books around new things to me, like emotional resilience or even acknowledging your emotions. And over a couple of years, not only did I heal my way out of this burnout, but I developed what became known as the happier method. And then I said, hold on a minute. I know I'm not the only person who has these mindset shifts that need to be made or who is struggling. And so that's how I got to doing what I do now, which is teaching this method to leaders and people in the workplace. Um, and at the core of it is the lesson that I learned that life is always hard. Life is challenging. Leadership, being a leader is hard. I think I begin every keynote I give to leaders by saying, let's just acknowledge being a leader is hard. But while life is full of challenges, we can learn to struggle less through them. And we do that by improving our emotional fitness. And the, the final thing I want to say about my journey is I used to think there was a choice I had to make. Like I either could take care of myself and my well-being or I could be a great leader and be successful. And what I've learned is it's the opposite. I have so much more to give as a leader, as a person, as a human, because I invest in myself. You know, isn't this so interesting? It's like the, the cobbler's kids have no shoes, right? <laughs> Here you are, the CEO of Happier Inc., and you're the most miserable person on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you talked about emotional fitness, and I, and I want to go there. Um, this idea, you, you say there are five core emotional, uh, emotional fitness skills. Mm -hmm. Uh, so walk us through how, how they're important and, and how you do that, the five, right? Yes. So um, before I dive into the five, I just want to give a definition of emotional fitness. Um, sure. Because I, I want our listeners to know. So the way that I define emotional fitness, it's a skill of creating a more supportive relationship with yourself, your thoughts, your emotions, and as a result with other people. And one way to think about it is, I think we all know what physical fitness is, right? Like when you're physically fit, you have greater endurance, you can run longer, you can lift bigger weights. With emotional fitness, when you're emotionally fit, you have greater inner resilience. So life can throw all kinds of challenges at you, but you have this toolkit to help support yourself through them so you struggle less and actually have more energy to do all the things you wanna do. And so the way to improve your emotional fitness, this is the, the five skills that I've identified and that I teach. The first is what I call acceptance, which is, I gotta just say, it's a word I used to really hate when I would hear it, because I thought acceptance <laughs> meant like, whatever happens, happens in life, you know, just sit back and relax. And I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a refugee, I'm a leader. Like, ew, I didn't like that, but I, I was just ignorant. Acceptance is not about being passive. In, instead, acceptance is the most powerful skill to help us focus on things that we can control 
and not waste our energy on things that are outside of our control. So the way that I define acceptance, it's a skill of looking at the situation or the challenge ahead of you with clarity. So focusing on the facts, like here's what's going on, instead of judgment, this shouldn't be like this, I shouldn't be like this, I wish it were different, and then using that as your starting point to say, given how this is, what is one thing I could do to move forward? What is one thing I could do for myself, for my team, for the situation to move forward with less struggle? It's an incredibly, incredibly powerful skill. The second is gratitude, which is probably more familiar to folks, but just to define it, gratitude is a skill of zooming in on small positive moments that are already part of your day, even when life is challenging, and being really generous with expressing your gratitude to others. And the reason gratitude is so essential is because all of our brains have what's called the negativity bias. We are all much more sensitive to anything that is wrong, or could go wrong, or did go wrong. So the best way to counter that, to balance it out, is by practicing gratitude so that our brain doesn't ignore all the many good moments of comfort or hope or kindness that are there, but our brain will ignore unless we practice gratitude. So that's the second skill. The third is the skill of self-care, which I find to be the most misunderstood concept. And I raised both of my hands. I also misunderstood it, partly because of the way our culture talks about self-care is like, some kind of a gift or a luxury you get. Once you get everything done and take care of everyone else, here, you can have a little self-care. Well, it's the opposite. So I define self-care as a skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy. The reality is that none of us are superhuman and we all have a limited amount of emotional, mental, and physical energy. And everything we do throughout the day requires energy. Listening to me right now requires your energy. Me talking requires energy. So if we don't intentionally fuel our energy reservoir, we will run out. And everything we do requires energy. So it's not like you can you know, uh, cheat the system. Like no one here, and this is what I, I think I used to think, Chester. You know, I used to think that, okay, well, I'm exhausted. I haven't slept. Uh, but it's okay, I, you know, I can go and lead my team. You can't do things on empty. So self-care is a skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy. So acceptance, gratitude, self-care. The fourth skill is intentional kindness, which sometimes people get surprised when I talk about kindness as a skill, because I think we all, you know, we've heard this expression of like random acts of kindness and we know be kind is good for us. Well, I say this with love, I don't care if you're a kind person. What's important is that we practice acts of kindness intentionally. As human beings, we cannot function alone. One of our core human requirements is to feel like we belong, that we're not alone, we're part of something. And so we need to fuel and strengthen our relationships. And the best way that I know how to fuel and strengthen your relationships at work and outside of work is by doing something kind towards another person but not expecting anything in return. And this is a really key part of kindness and part of the practice. And the final skill is what I call the bigger why. And the bigger why is a skill of connecting your daily tasks, your daily activities, your daily work projects to how do they help up someone else? How do they contribute to someone bigger than you? Or how do they help you reach a meaningful goal? That is where most of us derive a sense of meaning. You know, I'm, it's probably, you know, when we were all in college or graduating from college, I remember having these conversations of, oh, we have to go out and find our sense of purpose. It's like, it's out there somewhere. It's not, it's actually in your to-do list, but we have to actively practice connecting. Okay, I'm working on this project. 
How does that help my team? How does it contribute to our organization? How does it help me reach a goal of being a better leader, communicator, better human? We have to practice connecting our daily tasks to how they help others, and that's a skill of the bigger why. So I think I got the five, acceptance, gratitude, <laughs> intention, kindness. You did. That was a lot. <laughs> now you did very well there. Now, now I want to push a little bit because, you know, as great as those are, we get stuck, right? If we have any sort of anxiety, depression in our lives, we love our ruts, you know, mm, and yes. oh my gosh, the rut is so comfortable yes. and people get stuck, right? So how mm-hmm. do you move forward when things are hard and maybe you are feeling a little stuck? Yeah, I call this in my work, I call what you just described the valley of struggle, um, and we love to we love to get ourselves in the valley of struggle. And the way that I define the valley of struggle, by the way, is it's a space between how something is and how we think it should be. You know, the simplest description I'll give, because such a small example, like I get myself in the valley of struggle about the weather all the time. So I live outside of Boston where nine months out of the year is beautiful and then the winter is just awful. And then when it's like now, you know, it's spring, I go for a walk every morning. So I go outside and I'm ready for spring. And then it's 25 degrees, it was this morning. So what does my brain say? Oh my God, it should not be this cold. It should already be spring. It should be warmer. And there I am. When the weather, something I can't control is not how it should be, I am now struggling. So um, a couple really tangible ways to get out of the valley of struggle. The first is you have to begin with acceptance. The skills I listed are in order. Acceptance has to be the first one. And so acceptance is about Looking at the situation, just focusing on the facts instead of the stories the brain has told. So using my example, what are the facts? Well, the fact is it's 25 degrees outside and I'm cold. That's a fact. A story is this is not how it should be. It should already be warmer. That's a story. That's not reality. And by the way, another really important, Adrian, part of acceptance is to acknowledge your own feelings. Is I I am frustrated. I am annoyed. Great. And then you ask yourself, okay, This is how I feel, this is the situation. What is one thing I could do to move forward with less struggle? You know what it was for me? Because I'm actually giving you a real life example. It was 25 degrees this morning. For me, it was to go back into my house and put on a scarf and put on a hat and put on gloves even though I already put them away because that helps me to struggle less. Then my walk is actually, I'm facing reality as it is. So it's those two, it's really that practice of acknowledging your feelings and I think it's so important. I really want to reiterate A big part of acceptance is to acknowledge how you're feeling without judgment, to say, I am frustrated, I am sad, I am annoyed. You know, in our culture, we're afraid of difficult feelings. And you'll never hear me say positive or negative feelings. There are positive or negative thoughts, but there are no positive or negative feelings. You feel what you feel. And research shows when you acknowledge your emotions, especially the difficult ones, you feel them for a shorter amount of time and with less intensity. So acknowledge how you feel, Acknowledge the situation, focusing on the facts, and then ask yourself this question. What is one small thing? What's one step that I could do to move forward? And our brain loves a sense of progress. So once you identify that one step, your brain's going to think of like five more, and slowly you're through it. Yeah, you know, we have an expression, Adrian and I both grew up in Canada, that there's actually no such thing as bad weather. It's just inappropriate clothing. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard it whenever I complain about the weather. It's great advice, yes. Yeah, and a couple of mittens and a toque, right, Adrian? It solved most of your problems. Um, You talk about, um, and and I'm a big fan of positive self-talk. Mm. You know, that, that, that how you talk to yourself. We, often we will say meaner things to ourselves than we would ever say. 
you know, to anyone else. So talk to me about, uh, you call it self-compassion, right? And I also read where you said you, you have become an editor of your own thoughts, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. Can you explain those concepts and how they're important, positive self-talk and editing? Yes, well, they're connected. So the first truth, this is like T with a, you know, truth with a capital T to recognize is, our brain does not give us thoughts that are like some kind of objective description of reality, right? That is not how the human brain works. The brain, think of it, it has all these like lenses on it. I've talked about the negativity bias, right? Our brain is much more focused on everything that's wrong and negative. There's many more um, patterns. Everything that's happened in our life, our brain takes that and it starts looking for those patterns in our new experiences. So in the shorthand is your brain, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we believe they are. It's also known as a confirmation bias, right? I can go on and on. So your, the thoughts that your brain gives you, um, you have to realize they are filtered through all these life experiences and biases. So you have to practice being what I call the editor of your thoughts. And I have to say in my own healing from burnout and just in my own life, it's one of the core practices. And just like a good editor, right? You submit a draft to an editor. What does the editor do? The two questions the editor asks. The first is, is this thought true? Like when you submit a draft, you know, an editor of a newspaper article, it's looking, it has to like, do you have facts to support this? And by the way, just a, a note, like what other people think is not a fact. This is often, no, oh, well, other people expect this of me. Oh, my team is expect. That is not a fact. You are not in their job. You have to defend it in court. So what is the evidence to support this thought? The second question to ask is, is this thought helpful? In other words, if I follow this thought, if I accept it to be true, does it fuel me with energy? Does it motivate me? Does it help me be better as a leader or a friend or a parent? And asking those two questions, is this thought true and is this thought helpful, is an incredibly simple but powerful practice of editing your thoughts. Um, and if your answer, by the way, is no, this thought is not helpful, great. What would be a more helpful thought? Right, so, wow, my team is really upset at me because I asked them to do this, you know, this one project that's tough. Mm, is that helpful to think? No, because you're assuming things and it's demotivating. What would be a more helpful thought? Ask yourself. And this actually connects, Chester, to your question to positive self-talk. Very often these thoughts are about ourselves, right? I am not good enough as a leader. I really screwed that up. I am horrible. I will never succeed in this, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to edit these thoughts, and the best way to do that when they're pointed at ourselves is by practicing positive self-talk. We all know how to do it. We all know how to be compassionate. We do it towards friends, right? So just think about, like, if your friend um, tells you, oh, my God, I just, I'm not good enough at this job, right, or I'll never get this promotion, right, what would you say to that friend? Would you ever say, wow, you're terrible. You are really, really terrible. You, you're right. You're awful. <laughs> you would never say that. Right? It's hopeless. We do that to ourselves yeah. all the time. So the way to practice positive self-talk is to think about what would I say to someone I really care about? What would I say to a friend? And research shows that when you talk to yourself in a positive, supportive way, it has the same impact as if a friend or someone who really loves you is talking to you that way. So it's really, really powerful. You know, it, it is interesting. You know, I've talked to different people. They have a, a mantra or they have something they say, you know, like, they take a deep breath and say, all is well. Mm. Uh, I, I love the concept you're talking about. Another um, 
person, I forget whether if they were on the podcast or just in conversation, said, you really know you've broken through when your inner voice is your best friend. Mm. Uh, again, that idea that what would your best friend say to you and should, shouldn't you be your own best friend? And yet we tend to be our own harshest critic. That, that, was, that, that of... was probably me, Chess. If, yeah. <laughs> if it was a good, smart yeah, comment, yeah. Yeah, Natalie, I will often say, what would Adrian say? Don't say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes we have to filter. But, you know, I actually want to say something about that. Um, I, I used to believe that, and I work with so many leaders, um, and so many of them believe that self-criticism helps them improve. And so they actually believe that. I used to believe that too. I mean, I grew up that way. All I ever heard around me was people criticizing themselves and my family, and that's like how you get better. Well, I just want to call like official BS on that, okay? Because there's zero studies that show that endless self-criticism helps you improve. It actually doesn't. It reduces motivation. It reduces resilience. Um, it it uh, drains your energy. You know what does what research shows does help you improve? Self-compassion. Tons yeah, you of know, studies show that. And we still think that constantly telling ourselves how we're not good enough at this, we're not good enough at this, that that's motivating. So just one last thing. I, yeah. I was just recently at the tennis tournament at Indian Wells. These are the best tennis players in the world. And it was so interesting because I'd just gone through this whole, you know, research and stuff on self-talk and how it impacts athletes. By the, by the way, there was one athlete whose negative self-talk actually helped him play better. It was John McEnroe. There's always an exception to the rule. Of course. Nobody actually wants to be John McEnroe. <laughs> they just want to be as good a tennis player. It was so interesting. So I'm watching that and I'm talking to my brother and I said, you know what? That guy's getting down on himself. She's getting down. She will not win this match. Mm. He will not win this match. And you know what? We were right 100% of the time. It was amazing. Well, yeah. it, it, there is, it's documented, and you can think about it um, the following way. It's, it's really like, it's something we don't think about. Your words, the words you use to describe the world or about other people or about yourself, they dramatically impact not just how you feel, but what your brain is focused on, right? And we don't think that way. So I, I often remind people, your thoughts are not free. Right? You can either think thoughts that motivate you, that fuel you, that help your brain focus on being the most productive, the best at its game, whether it's a, a you know, phys- actual game on a court or in what you're doing, or you can think thoughts and talk to yourself in a way that actually reduces your ability to be at your best. And that's what endless self-criticism does. Well, this has been so great, Natalie. I'm noticing our time has already <laughs> flown by here. How can people learn more about your work? Where would you send them? Yeah, very easy. My website, nataliekogan.com. Natalie, spelled with a Y. There's a story about that. My Russian name is Natasha. And when we were in the refugee camp on the way here, we had no documents. So they said, okay, fill in any name. And I thought Natalie would sound more American, but I spelled it with a Y. <laughs> so, let this, so now I ended up with a name. Everyone's always asking me like, oh, that's an interesting name. Where are you from? So don't ever try to be something you're not. So nataliekogan.com, N-A-T-L-Y, um, kogan.com. And my book and all my work is there. Um, and I just want to invite everyone. I do a live show every Wednesday. Chester is going to be a guest on it in a couple months. It's called Awesome Human Hour. It's on Wednesdays at noon. It is free. You register. If you can't make it, we send you a recording. Um, and Chester, I can't wait for you to be at a guest. So for you to, well, switch roles. You'll be in the guest. There you go. Can't wait. It's going to be great fun. You might say, awesome. 
Yeah. And, I may. And I, I just hope you can get him out of his shell, Natalie. Uh, he's, <laughs> I will do my best. He's, yeah, if you would. Uh, hey, so last question from my perspective is somebody who's gone through burnout and you say it's so, so individual. What daily practices do you do to keep your emotional fitness at a, at a level that you want it to be at to, to help you achieve all you need to? Yeah, so I'm not going to go through all of them because I. The the thing is, I practice all these skills in different ways. But I want to mention a couple of things I do every morning because the way we start our day dramatically impacts the rest of the, how the day goes. Our brain has a lot of inertia, so um, I think about in the morning how what do I do today to fuel my mental, emotional, and physical energy, right? Because I you can't give what you don't have. If I'm on empty, I can't give. So. Um, I've already mentioned I take a daily walk. Um, if at all you can take a walk outside, it's a really, really powerful way to fuel, to fuel yourself. Um, I don't formally meditate, but I spend, I have some time of what I call stillness and silence every morning. And that's a beautiful part of acceptance just to become aware, to check in with yourself and be like, well, how am I? We check on others, right? So this is a way to do it with yourself. Um, and gratitude practice is part of my everyday. And it, I either write down things I'm grateful for, I'll write gratitude notes to my husband and my daughter, someone I'm working with. It's a cornerstone of every day. Sometimes I'll do it in the morning, sometimes in the evening, but I find just these couple things that I've mentioned, it's such a powerful way to set yourself up for having the best possible day that day, which doesn't have to be your best day, but it's the best possible day I can have that day. So, you know, I love those practices. I, you know, Mondays are tough for me for some mm. reason, just lately. Nice long walks outdoors really, really does help fuel my day. And I love the way you put that. Well, listen, if you wanted people to remember just one or two things from the conversation, those, those gems, what would they be? Um, I would give you one sentence, and I say this at the end of every workshop and talk I give. You can't give what you don't have. You cannot give what you don't have, not for lack of trying but, and not for lack of your desire, but the fact is that we're all human beings, and in order for us to lead others, in order for us to bring our best to our work, to our interaction with people we care about, we first have to take care of our own emotional fitness. So you can't give what you don't have. That's brilliant. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Natalie, so much for sharing your wisdom with us and for all you're doing to help so many people out in the world. Thank you. Yeah, Thank we're you. grateful for you. Natalie Thank with you. a Y. Don't forget, Natalie <laughs> Kogan with a Y. Thanks so much for your time, Natalie. No, thanks for such awesome conversation. Loved it. Thank you. Adrian, an awesome guest. I don't say that lately. Uh, Natalie was beyond delightful. Tell me two or three things that you took away from the uh, from the conversation. Well, just so relevant to uh, everything that we talk about in our book, Anxiety Work. She talked about you know, this idea of, you know, managers, you put your oxygen mask on first, right? She says, servant leadership has, has become muted to become martyr leadership, but it's leading to right. burnout. I think that was really uh, important, that we have to lead in a sustainable way, that we, we can't be martyrs anymore, or we won't be able to lead our people. Right. The valley of struggle. I, I put a big circle around that, you know, how it is and then how it should be. You know, is, hey, this isn't right. It should be different. And we spend all this time when the facts right in front of us are telling us, yes, and it's not that way. <laughs> so what's that one thing? And wasn't that interesting? Find one thing that you can do and it will trigger more. Start with that one thing. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, no, I thought that was that was really important as well. Under that idea of acceptance and uh, and pushing out, you know, those, those you know our inner voice of 
look, it's not what people say. It's not what we think is the truth. But being the editor of our own thoughts was very powerful. You know, first off, is it true? Well, yeah, because other people think this or I think they are judging me. And okay, so what facts do you have to back that up? Well, I just know how people are. That's not a fact. Uh, (laughs) Secondly, is it helpful that you're thinking this? Probably not. So what if you're wrong? <laughs> you know, yeah, that, uh, yeah. that somebody is a jerk and they're thinking that, is it helpful to you? No. And so edit your thoughts. Be more positive. I thought it was really great. Yeah. The, the, the tough part, I think, is on that when you know somebody really well. You know, like, I do know what you're thinking, Adrian. Okay. And I do know. <laughs> yeah, after 22 years yeah, after working 22 together. Years. Oh, yeah. You know everything. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm at your mercy. Uh, I could uh, make you cry in just a moment. Yeah. I, I can make you cry. I know I can. Yeah. Um, the gratitude piece I thought was wonderful. And that was part of her daily practices. You know, a note to her husband and her daughter, uh, writing some things down. And of course, you know, our book, Leading with Gratitude, we talk all about that. I, I loved, again, when she said, start your day in a way that fuels you. I never thought of it like that. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this because I know it's going to make me feel better. When you think about your gas tank being, you know, low, your, or your phone, a low charge, how can I fuel that up? Because what did she say at the end? You can't give what you don't have, which oh, exactly. I thought was brilliant. And, you know, that we do have to deal with difficult conversations and difficult feelings. And, you know, we were just chatting with a, a doctor, an MD, who said, uh, you know, the way that our children process uh, things early in their lives will help them process things later. It just makes a lot of sense. And yet, how often do we just have that, you know, rub some dirt on it mentality about mental health? We have to be able to do that and and realize that, you know, for whether it's our children, ourselves, our brain does not give us an objective focus of, of reality, that we are skewing things and, and seeing them as we believe, and that we have to help those in our care see things a little bit more objectively, a little bit more positively. Yeah. One thing she said that I, it was a little shocking until she explained, she goes, I don't care if you're a kind person. <laughs> and I, well, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't we care about that? She says, I care that you do kind things. You know, that you're a kind yeah. person that does kind things. That, so you put that into action. There were so many wonderful things that she said that helped me to kind of reframe things. Yeah. You know, I'm fueling myself. That self-talk, you know, uh, if you're a kind person, then do kind things. There was always this call to action that I really liked about what Natalie was saying. Find, start with that one thing. You know, go for a walk, you know. And there were just so many gems. This is a podcast that I could listen to two or three times and each time take away something good. Absolutely. This this really was one of our, our best podcasts because of how practical it is. So we want to thank Natalie for being on. And, uh, and we want to thank our producer, Brent Klein, for the amazing work he does. Uh, to Christy Lawrence, who helps us find such, such terrific guests like Natalie. And to all of you who have listened in and, and downloaded the podcast and help us to grow this movement to help with anxiety at work. Yeah, we really do appreciate the fact that you give us, you know, 45 minutes of your day. I mean, everybody's busy. You could be doing whatever you want with that. So we're really grateful that you're giving us your time. And as Adrian said, if you like the podcast, download it. Share it with friends. Share it with somebody that you think could benefit from some of these wonderful practical tips that Natalie shared with us. And join our, our online community, wethrivetogether.global. We're creating a safe place for people to talk about their anxieties. And, you know, we love speaking to audiences. Uh, we've done it around the world. We've presented in over 45 countries. So if you've got a leadership gathering and you think that addressing mental health, culture, 
these practices of gratitude, please uh, give us a call. We'd love to talk to you about your event. That's great. Uh, we we do, and uh, we've uh, Chester. What, what are you up to? Eight continents now. You've spoken on. Is it nine? <laughs> <laughs> Pen well, Pangora. If, if you count, yeah. If you count Greenland and, uh, and, and Atlantis, um, we we really do uh, appreciate your time. And of course, buy our book, Anxiety at Work. There's eight strategies there in dealing with you know uncertainty and and. Uh, helping you with resilience and, and getting stuff done. I keep coming back to this. The thing I loved about Natalie is it helped you do stuff, helped you get stuff done. And there's a lot of tips in our book about that. Available available on Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere. Hey, thanks everybody for joining us. Until next time, we wish you the best of mental health. Take care and be well. <laughs>